listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Questions for Corbett podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 25th day of February 2017. Welcome to the 34th edition of the Questions for Corbett monthly podcast, although you'll note there was no edition of this podcast last month because instead of the Questions for Corbett podcast, I did an Ask Me Anything over on Reddit. I will include the link in the show notes in case you missed that, but uh, it was a lively discussion and lots of uh, questions and answers, so please do check that out if you didn't see that. And thank you, as always, to everyone who sent in their questions for this edition of the series. As always, for those who don't know, there are many different ways to get your questions in. Of course, you can just use the contact form on CorbettReport.com to either send me a text message or an audio message, and there were a couple of audio questions this month, so we will get to that shortly. Uh, there, Of course, uh, members of the Corporate Report community are invited, nay, exhorted to log into the website and leave your questions or your answers or your observations or anything else in the comment section of this post on CorbettReport.com. And uh, you can tweet me using the Q4C hashtag. We used to use QFC, but we've switched to Q4C. Or uh, you can send me a video message, uh, put it on a video platform, and just let me know it's there. And I will be happy to include that in the next edition of this series. But as always, let's start by taking a look over at the comment section on the previous edition of the Q4C series, uh, number 33, and there was, as always, a lively discussion going on there, lots of questions and comments and back and forth, including an answer to the questions for you that I left the audience with last time, namely regarding the question, if you were suddenly made ruler of the world, what monetary system would you implement? What do you think would be the fairest way? There were some interesting responses to that. Uh, and, of course, as always, lots of questions in from the Corbett Report community itself. So we'll start with a couple of very easy, very simple, very quick questions and answers that I can provide from last time. And we'll start with M. Key, who left the question or a comment uh, with an implied question. I'd like to hear your opinion on the matter of lifters, LFTRs, or liquid fluoride thorium reactors. I had presented this issue once before, but I was probably overlooked. Uh, maybe you were, MK. I don't remember particularly uh, a previous comment on it, but I will exhort you to type the word thorium into the search bar of CorbettReport.com and your question will be answered. Uh, let's go to Home Remedy Supply, who asked, uh, James, do you know of any open source avenues which give guidance to small-time people like me towards shorting corrupt co uh, corporations in the marketplace? A very interesting idea, Home Remedy Supply. Isn't that an interesting idea to use these uh, weapons of financial destruction against the financial destructors themselves, the... Uh, the the people who are the, the financial terrorists committing financial crimes against the, uh, the economy, can't we turn these weapons against them? It's an idea that has been raised in the past and has been at least attempted before. Does anyone remember Karma Bank? If not, I will put a link in the show notes to an interview that I conducted a very, very long time ago with Max Kaiser about the Karma Bank idea and their campaign to boycott Coca-Cola and others and to short them heavily and uh, profit when their, uh, their shares tank. You might have noticed that hasn't exactly eventuated in anything over the last several years, but I still think it's a valid and a good idea. The principle of it is uh, certainly intriguing, and I hope there will be other people who will similarly act, uh, activate that idea and put it to good use. So again, I'll just exhort you to take a look at that, uh, that interview, which again will be linked up in the show notes. Uh, as I said, we have some audio questions this month, so let's get to the first one. Uh, this one from Mike. Hi, James. This is a question for Corbett. I've recently seen this the following phrase crop up in my social media feeds a few times, and I haven't been able to locate the source of it. And I'm just wondering if it's, uh, if it's a credible kind of quote or if it's just part of uh, the kind of internet confusion. Uh, so the quote is, the Club of Rome has said that genocide should be used to eliminate people who they refer to as useless eaters. Is this uh, can this actually be linked directly back to the Club of Club of Rome? This quote and this uh, phrase, "useless eaters." 
Thank you so much for all the hard work that you put into the Corbett Report. It's uh, one of the most valuable sources of information I've ever found on the internet. And I thank you for that. And uh, and I have been a contributor, financial contributor, because I recognize how difficult it is to um, to make these things financially sustainable. From Scotland, thanks. Thank you very much for the question, Mike. And this allows me to address once again a particular pet peeve of mine that you'll have noticed if you've listened over the years. That is these misattributed quotes or sourceless quotes or demonstrably, provably false quotes that are misattributed to various people and the alternative media does it quite a bit. So it is a particular pet peeve of mine. Now, I would need to see the actual uh, context in which this quotation that you're talking about was nested to understand if this is just a paraphrase, they're kind of editorializing their overall opinion of the Club of Rome or whether they are saying this is a direct quote. But I can tell you, as far as I know, and please, if anyone does have a direct quote of such of, of, that, of that kind, please do send it along. But as far as I know, the Club of Rome certainly has never used the words useless eaters or talked about the need for genocide. Um, it generally speaking, if a quote sounds too implausible to be true, too amazing, too horrific, then generally speaking, it's not true. And as I say, there's absolutely no record whatsoever that I have ever seen or come across or been able to find of a quotation like that from the Club of Rome. But of course, in the context of paraphrasing, maybe this is something that we can talk about with regard to a overall tendency of the Club of Rome. So what is the Club of Rome? For those who don't know, you can go to clubofrome.org and you can find on their About section, you can see the Club of Rome is an organization of individuals who share a common concern for the future of humanity and strive to make a difference. Our members are notable scientists, economists, businessmen, high-level civil servants, and former heads of state from around the world. Our mission is to promote understanding of the global challenges facing humanity and to propose solutions through scientific analysis, communication, and advocacy. So... Long story short, this is a uh, globalist think tank and staffed with, uh, well, a lot of people who's, who are not household names, some household names, uh, Gorbachev and uh, Joseph Stiglitz and people like that being members or associate members or honor honorary members or what have you. Um, but this uh, is a think tank that issues reports and publications of that sort. And the most famous or infamous, depending on which side of the line you fall on, was the Limits to Growth which I believe was published in 1972 and was all about the uh, the doom and gloom scare scaranoia threat of the late 60s, early 70s, the overpopulation, the bomb that Paul Ehrlich and others wrote about and how it was going to destroy Western... Oh, no, not Western civilization. Humanity itself was going to be destroyed by this and it led to the insane and ridiculous and completely laughably wrong predictions of people like Ehrlich that he, he gave even odds that the UK wouldn't even exist in the year 2000 because of all of the famines and and all the like which were coming down the line, right? And uh, the Club of Rome and the Limits to Growth were very much a part of that hype and threat, and they hyped up their own laughably, provably uh, mistaken, wrong uh, conclusions, predictions, ideas that they, they thought were coming down the line. And uh, uh, so in that context, of course, they are part of the Agenda 2030 technocracy kind of uh, idea, this uh, idea of sustainable growth, sustainable development, all these things that sound wonderful and warm and fuzzy, but really are about trying to get the vice-like grip over the neck of humanity to squeeze out any of the breath of life that may be left in it so that we don't overpopulate the planet with our evil human cancer. That kind of, that kind of rhetoric. So, as I say, as far as I know, there's no useless eater money quote, but uh, one that I hope my audience will be familiar with, because I've referenced it numerous times, is the rather startling passage from their 1991 publication, The First Global Revolution, where they wrote, quote, In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the I we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap, which we've already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by 
human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. End quote. That is insanity. I wish it was insanity. I wish there were not people who truly believed that out there, but there it is in black and white, and I will put the link into the actual document itself so you can go read it, read it in its context, find out what these, yeah, I mean, genocidal psychopathic maniacs who have a hate, hatred for humanity, and it's I mean, there are people who are just blinded by the sort of religious uh, side of it, the, 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 the cult of this Gaia worship and all of that. But I think the people who are funding this and the people at the top of this organization don't, don't really hate humanity per se. They just hate everyone who isn't part of their pure genetic bloodlines. So of course, this gets back into the eugenics idea and all of that. And so it comes to the question, okay, so we've looked at that and there clearly is, I mean, I, I don't disagree with the, 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 the paraphrase, the idea that the Club of Rome thinks of the vast majority of humanity as useless leaders, or at least certain members of that organization, not everyone. Again, there are people who genuinely believe this. Um, but it raises the question about that phrase, useless eaters. I'm sure in the alternative media space, people have heard that many, many times, sort of thrown out there in the context of this kind of Malthusian eugenical idea. Well, where does the phrase useless eaters come from? Again, it's often bandied about as if it was said by Henry Kissinger or... Uh, sometimes I see it, it was implied by uh, Kissinger's uh, National Security Memorandum 200, the food as a weapon uh, memorandum, which again doesn't even specifically say that food is a weapon or anything of that sort. I mean, again, there's not going to be a money quote like that in some sort of public document. So uh, I've never heard Kissinger say it. As far as I know, no one has ever heard him say it. It's never been directly attributed to him. So again, it's just one of those things that gets thrown around. But there is an actual, I mean, where did that phrase, useless eaters, come from? It actually is a direct translation of a German term that I'm going to butcher here because I do not speak German, but Nutzlos Fresser, which translates into English roughly as useless eaters, but it actually has an even more dehumanizing aspect to that. From what I understand, I'm just going off of other people's interpretations, because Ian and I don't speak German, but there's a difference between, I guess, esser and fresser, which is the idea of humans eating something and just sort of animals eating something. So this is, I mean, it's almost like useless animal eaters kind of thing. They're not even human. Um, this is related to a term, um, Lebensunwertsleben, uh, life unworthy of life, which uh, was also kicked around in Germany. Uh, specifically in 1920, there was a thesis by Carl Binding and Alfred Hoch uh, in a work that they had permission for the destruction of life unworthy of life. Uh, I'll throw in a link in the show notes so you can read about that and how that book kicked off a big debate in, in Germany at the time and uh, was one of the, the sources for the philosophy that developed into, obviously, the Nazis and their eugenical programs, including the T4 euthanasia program. So this is the context in which useless eaters actually emerged, but I think it is safe to say it is part of the overall globalist depopulation eugenics agenda and is the idea that it is at least implied by a lot of these documents and things that we talk about, like Kissinger's NSM 200, but again, it's not a direct quotation. In terms of direct quotations from K Kissinger, there is one interest, very interesting one that does get thrown around a lot. Um, military men are dumb, stupid animals to be used as pawns for foreign policy. Now, that is a quote that was attributed to Kissinger by... Woodward and Bernstein, the uh, the, the Watergate uh, journalists who, of course, went on to, to well, at least one half of that, had a very prosperous journalistic career that is, I suppose, still going. Um, the other half wrote about CIA and the media, and you don't really hear about him very much. But uh, obviously, Woodward's still a, a journalist who's revered, except for this quotation, which... Again, it appears in their book, The Final Days, in chapter 14, um, and it is attributed to Alexander Haig, who said that Kissinger told this to someone who is not named, and um, he heard it from that person. So that's the sourcing of this, but it's interesting if you look at, you know, wiki quotes or, you know, any kind of mainstream source on things like this, uh, they 
although Woodward and Bernstein would be, you know, the holy stamp of imprimatur of this is the sine qua non of of journalism in the 20th century. These these are the penultimate, you know, these are the these are the guys at the at the pinnacle of journalism. Except for when it comes to things like this. And then it says this is not only, you know, not properly sourced and there's no direct documentary evidence of this, but it's even unlikely because Kissinger speaks in very calm and measured tones and scholarly tones and he would never say something like this. I mean, that's the kind of commentary you get from people. So that's an interesting quotation that, to be fair, Kissinger himself has publicly denied ever having said that. So again, take it for what it's worth. But th- this is the kind of things that we fall into, the kind of traps that can be fallen into quite easily. Um, if we just take quotations at face value, oh, someone said this? Okay, I guess so. Always, always, always look for the source of a quotation before you take it um, seriously yourself. And I have addressed this before. For example, I did a, uh, um, a podcast on uh, Patriot Mythology where I talked about false quotations. So I'll put that in the link in the show notes as well so you can check into that. But uh, it's something that gets bandied around. Even if the idea of it is correct, to attribute a quotation falsely is, I think, completely the wrong way to proceed. Because if someone who is, say, skeptical takes a look at this quotation that you've put out there and find, looks into it and finds, no, they never said that, then that scuttles the argument. Why put in demonstrable lies or at least things that you are not sure of in an argument. I mean, it's it's only detrimental. And if you're searching for the truth, then using lies or things that you can't prove or things that aren't known um, does not seem like a way forward. So this is a long answer, but I hope it does answer that question. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's move on to the next question. This one from the contact form from Jeff. Um, in fact, I had a lot of questions on this topic recently, but uh, this one enca- encapsulates it quite succinctly. Jeff writes... What is Bitcoin and how do I buy it? (laughs) Well, there's been a lot of interest in Bitcoin. I've gotten several questions over the last month. So um, I'll just direct people to Bitcoin.com just for the general basic overview so that people can look into what is Bitcoin. Bitcoin.com, by the way, is not it. it, That is not Bitcoin itself. It is not. I mean, there's no official stamp of approval of Bitcoin because it's a decentralized peer to peer network. But Bitcoin.com is a place you can go just to start learning some of the information about Bitcoin. And in their FAQ, they have the question, what is Bitcoin? And the answer is Bitcoin's inventor, Satoshi Nakamoto, described Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer electronic cash system in the original 2009 Bitcoin white paper, the document which created the roadmap for Bitcoin. To date, this is still the most simple and accurate description. Bitcoin is a consensus network that enables a new payment system and a completely digital money. It is the first decentralized peer-to-peer payment network that is powered by its users with no central authority or middlemen. From a user perspective, Bitcoin is perhaps best described as cash for the internet, but Bitcoin can also be seen as the most prominent triple-entry bookkeeping system in existence. It is also known as digital cash, cryptocurrency, an international payment network, the internet of money. But whatever you call it, Bitcoin is a revolution that is changing the way everyone sees and uses money. Okay, so that's from Bitcoin.com. So that's just, again, just a very general overview. If you are really interested in the specifics, you can look at the Bitcoin 2009 white paper. But I mean, it's it's pretty technical stuff. So I'm imagining it would be over people's heads. You could go to a place like Wikipedia or whatever, the bastion of truthiness, just to get an overview of, of this system and what it is. But I would suggest you start familiarizing yourself just just delving into even the Bitcoin.com FAQ, if you are interested in this, and from there you can find places to branch out and find out more. You can follow. I mean, I I look at uh, sites like CoinDesk.com and there's uh, uh, Bitcoin News and places like that where there are news articles coming out about blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular. Um, on a regular basis. And it's like anything else. The more you read about it, the more familiar you get with different ideas. So it can be as complicated or as simple as you want it to be. Here is my advice for people um, who are just dipping their toe into it and just want to buy a little bit of Bitcoin so they can see what it's all about. I would again say go to something like Bitcoin.com, read up on it, read about the different types of wallets there are and how you can use them and what's easiest to use versus what's most secure, what you need for your purposes, whether you're going to be at your desktop or mobile or how you want to do it, whether you want to store this forever or whether you want to use it easily. There's a lot of different considerations and a lot of different wallets out there that you can use. And once you do, then it's a question of, well, how do you get Bitcoin? You can go through an exchange, but increasingly so in most 
places uh, to go through an exchange to buy Bitcoin. You're going to have to feed them all sorts of details about yourself and send them, I don't know, drops of blood or whatever it is. I'm only half joking at this point, but you have to verify yourself seven ways from Sunday for most exchanges these days. Or you could go through local Bitcoin or something like that, where you can physically face-to-face transact with someone. But be careful about your local laws, people. I wouldn't want you to do anything illegal. Um, So there's lots of different ways to start dipping your toe in the water. But like anything else, I, I would say this for people looking to buy gold or silver or anything or Bitcoin, buy a little bit to play with just to start to familiarize yourself and see how it works and see what you're doing and test things out and make sure there's no problems because you don't want to obviously put a huge amount. Don't put anything, don't buy thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's going to be a significant financial loss for you if it, if you don't secure your wallet properly or you don't know what you're doing or you don't end up using it. You don't want to tie it all up in Bitcoin like that. So just get a little bit, just a little bit just to play with, just to see how it works and just to see that it works. And it's the kind of proof of concept that I think can at least ignite the fires in the minds of men. And as as I say with everything, I think I don't think there should be a single singular currency that we all have to transact in and that can be the only way. I think Bitcoin is just one of many different ideas and systems that I think people should have at least as an arrow in their quiver. So um, on that note... For the next three days after the release of this podcast, any Corbett Report member who leaves their Bitcoin address in the comment section of this post on CorbettReport.com, I will send you 0.01 Bitcoin, which as of the exchange rate right now is about $11, but whatever, I mean, that'll fluctuate. But I will send 0.01 Bitcoin to any Bitcoin address in the comment section of this post on CorbettReport.com for the next three days. It's a 72-hour window. So if you want to start a Bitcoin address and a Bitcoin wallet and send me your address, or as I say, post it in the comment section. This is for Corbett Report members. I will send you 0.01 Bitcoin so you can at least start. Dip your little toe in the water and see what's happening. All right, let's move on. Uh, we'll move back to the previous edition of Q4C on the Corbett Report website, where Corbett Report member David.S left this observation slash question. If there is a so-called war on cash, why is the Bank of England replacing millions of five-pound notes for new plastic ones, and every year mints new replacement one-pound, 50p coins, etc.? I'm sure this is not an isolated case of costly currency updating. That's a very interesting observation, uh, David, and it's interesting that you bring this up because I was just writing just recently. You might have seen my uh, uh, my article on China prepping a new digital yuan, where one of the reasons that the Chinese government is citing for the reason why they're testing out their own private blockchain, not a Bitcoin system, but their private blockchain settlement uh, system so that they can start a digital yuan currency to start to supplement the paper yuan is to say, it's so costly to print all this paper. We need something, you know, it'll save us however many millions of dollars equivalent every year. It'll be great for the people. Uh, that's one of the reasons. Of course, it's, you know, whatever else, money laundering problems and counterfeiting and what have you. But, and I mean, really, it's about 100% control over the currency, as we know, with the war on cash agenda. But but that's one of the reasons that they're going to pull out. And this will be familiar to p- some people in the audience. I know Canadians have been indoctrinated with this over the years. That's, I mean, recently why they phased out the, or one of the reasons why they phased out the penny and uh, more... Uh, more distantly in the past, why they phased out the dollar and two dollar bills for coins. You know, it's uh, coins can be uh, can last longer and don't have as much wear and tear, so they don't need to be replaced as often. So it saves money. That's going to be one of the reasons they they roll they, specifically that they roll out the idea for this uh, cashless society. Um, I, I, as I say, it's going to be a fig leaf, but it's going to be one of the ideas. So you're. You're bringing up something that will be brought up in coming years. Why are we spending all this money printing all this pesky paper when we could just have this digital currency? It is coming. So, again, you I mean, be skeptical by all means, but it is coming. And I'm telling you this now. And in a few years from now, when it starts, when the, the full court press really starts rolling out on this, you'll, you'll see it. Um, but it's already starting. And we again, we've documented this in the war on cash uh, open source investigation that we did last Last year? Yeah, about a year ago. So I'll 
refer people back to that if they want uh, some examples of that that are going on in every single country around the globe simultaneously, almost as if it was a coordinated international agenda to start a new world order. Speaking of which, uh, an interesting question in from the contact form from Hugh. He writes, The string of pearls and the U.S. AFRICOM reaction seems eerily like a reprise of the McCollum memo goading Japan in the 1940s, while the Russophobia under Barack Obama, Hillary Rodham Clinton, is flipping, flipping to Sino-bashing with the incoming Trump administration. Is this Orwellian 1984 flip-flopping of the current boogeyman just an attempt to thwart the new Silk Road economic alliance? question mark okay that that's a very dense question <laughs> it's a very dense question um so people might not know all of the the moving parts in there um the string of pearls africom the mccollum memo and the risophobia and the flipping of the script um but it you you point a, a certain narrative thread that's very interesting there and certainly there are very interesting parallels between uh what was being done uh during the the roosevelt administration to as you say, goad the Japanese in the 30s and the 40s uh, into some sort of drastic maneuver, which, of course, ultimately ended up being Pearl Harbor. And uh, that's been talked about many times in the past, and I think we mentioned it at least uh, a little bit in my conversation with James Perloff on Tora Tora Tora. But, uh, yes, so there was that going on, um, the kind of squeeze that was going on of Japan that was going to force it to make a bold move, uh, which it obviously did, and it took the bait that was left there by Roosevelt and his administration, um, Pearl Harbor. Um, and so what we have now is the string of pearls, the new Silk Road Economic Alliance, the One Belt, One Road policy, all of the, the this idea of this grand trading route being established um, by the Chinese government. They're pumping in nearly a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending. They've committed to that from their China Development Bank in various countries around the world in terms of transport infrastructure and logistics and all of that. That is being prepped right now, and they're starting to spend that money, and they're starting to build up those routes. And you have things like U.S. AFRICOM. They're trying to get that toehold in the African continent, the formal military toehold. Um, or you see uh, suddenly there are, you know, independence movements and terrorist movements and things sprouting up in areas like uh, in, in southern uh, Pakistan, where uh, there, it just so happens that the Chinese have a port that they want to use to try to move some of their goods out up from Africa into uh, across Pakistan into China. And now suddenly there's different independence movements and things that are sprouting up that are being supported by U.S. congressmen. Surprise, surprise. So there's, I mean, you clearly see this as that kind of chess game and the Chinese are being kind of blocked in here and hemmed in there. And, you know, ultimately this is obviously coming to a head and it's clearly a, a, a that type of thing. But there's the other side of this. You point to, as I've pointed to, the Trump administration flipping the script, and now it's the Chinese boogeyman, the Trump's pivot to China I wrote about recently. And I do see that, and there are clearly uh, Sinophobes in the Trump administration, as just as Russophobes uh, populated, obviously, Barack Obama's State Department. Um, and still do to some extent, but, uh, but, uh, and I've, I've talked about that flipping the script and yet then you have other pieces of information like Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. I just wrote about this in the forecaster. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, he is now setting, advising the Chinese government and setting up forward operating bases in China that will be used to essentially, according to whistleblowers on the inside of this, uh, this new group, uh, is going to be a Blackwater for China. That's essentially what he's trying to set up, according to these whistleblowers. So, um isn't this strange and and specifically and even in the frontier services group this new organization in their actual pr they're talking about they're they're trying to ride on this gravy train of money that's coming through the uh, china development bank and others for this infrastructure spending on the new silk road so they're specifically positioning themselves to benefit from this and to you know yeah sure we'll set up a black water for you or whatever you need um and yet prince is also not only a and a, a donator, a donor to Trump's super PAC and a supporter of Trump and someone who's appeared on Breitbart Radio for the last several months as an expert, you know, we should start a new Phoenix program and all of that kind of nonsense. And of course, his sister, uh, Betsy DeVos, has just been appointed education secretary. Uh, but um, yeah, now he 
is also an unacknowledged advisor to the Trump administration, and at the same time helping China set up a Blackwater-type organization, which is probably technically illegal, um, defense services um, being one of the prohibited uh, items for uh, U.S. Co- corporations to be helping with uh, China. So, uh, you know, depending, it's a Hong Kong company set up, incorporated in Bermuda or wherever it is. So, again, take it for what it's worth in terms of how they get around that and the fig leaves they put on it. But anyway, what's going on here? It's almost as if China, as an economic or military power, to the extent that it is either, has been built up self-consciously over the last three decades with the help of the United States in terms of technology transfers, in terms of funding and infrastructure and a development aid and uh, specific investment by the U.S. tech industry, for example, that comes with uh, quid pro quos in terms of what they get out of the deal. It's almost like this has been part of a coordinated agenda to build them up as the boogeyman for the 21st century. And just like in Cold, the original Cold War, Cold War 2.0, if it does come to fruition with China, they'll be blocking them in and and warring with them, however literally or metaphorically, with NATO and all of that as one side of that, but then also helping them set up Blackwater and whatever on the other side of it through other arms uh, more covert. Again, it seems like this is all just a setup for another fleecing of the public in terms of, here's the boogeyman, be scared of them, we're secretly helping them, but be scared of them, and oh, it might be war. Anyway, I have a lot more to say about this, but I've already said a lot about this, so I'll direct people to a number of things that I've written about this in the past. The Great Decoupling, How the West is Engineering Its Own Downfall, Deal with the Devil, How the Global Elite Recolonized China, China and the U.S., Frenemies with Benefits, uh, Phony Opposition, The Truth About the BRICS, and, of course, my episode 297 on China and the New World Order. So a lot of material to go through there. That's one one amazingly dense question. A few, a couple of sentences, and uh, I could talk about that for hours. But uh, very perceptive. But I think there's a lot going on under the surface that we're not seeing as well. And uh, as I say, there's a lot more to, about that specifically to come in the future. Now let's go back to the audio, the SpeakPipe application on my t- contact form at CorbettReport.com, where another listener, Matthias, left this message. Hi, James. Thank you for a really amazing show and for always inspiring to dig deeper and like get to the truth of it. Um, I'd like to ask a question regarding like normally you have the the government making the rules, the the police uh, executing on the rules, and and the and what's the name the 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 the, the court interpreting uh, the rules. And then you say, one say that there is like a fourth power called the the, the press. So the press is like the, the dog barking when something is wrong. But my question is, what is the incentive for the media to actually reveal corruption and stuff like that? All right. I hope my question made sense. Uh, thank you very much and hope to see your next video soon. Bye. Thank you for the question, Matthias. That is actually a very profound question, perhaps even more profound than it appears on first glance. What is the incentive for media to report on corruption and criminality? In fact, I think the answer to that question is very straightforward and obvious to most normal functioning human beings, which is even if you are 100% solely motivated by personal self-interest and greed, then still... You want to live in a society where it is not the norm, it is not allow allowable for wanton corruption and criminality to run rampant because one way or another that is going to come back and reflect on you and your family and your friends and your loved ones. At some point, that is going to impinge on your own life, even if you are only 100% self-interested. So that's the normal, rational reason why Yes, of course, criminality and corruption happens at all times throughout all societies at some level to some degree, and some of it gets covered up, but not to a wild and rampant degree, and it's not systematically covered up because that leads to societies that will break down because of the corruption and criminality. So who would be interested in covering that up? Now, I think because the answer is seemingly so obvious, the actual question is the inverse question. 
what is the incentive that clearly exists and clearly has existed for at least a century for the big media conglomerates to cover up criminality and corruption? Why do they participate in that cover-up? And like so many of these questions, I think it, there's different strata of the, the, the power pyramid that have their own interests, and some of them converge and some of them have different ideas altogether. But uh, one thing to keep in mind is that the people that we know, the names that we know, the, the faces that we see as the media, the journalists, the anchors, whatever, are generally the people, if not at the bottom, at least at the lower rungs of that power ladder, <laughs> uh, ladder of power, <laughs> um, which uh, above them, of course, they're answering, answering to their editors and the editors, of course, have to answer to the publishers and the publishers obviously have owners themselves. So... That's the real power structure, and I think at the very top, it's quite easy to see, and we all understand there are, there were only six corporations that controlled 90% of the media that people saw in America. Now it's five corporations. Thank you, corporate mergers and uh, centralization. And it's quite easy to see why those owners have a very real and obvious and tangible and documentable monetary interest in protecting their corporate interests. And not just their corporate interests, but their cronies' corporate interests as well. I mean, when you only have five or six media moguls who control most of the media, then they tend to sit on the same boards and go to the same meetings and belong to the same organizations. And they have, uh, they have reasons for not going after each other. So the, the daggers will not be drawn, generally, unless there's a coordinated plan to take someone down. And uh, as part of the Game of Thrones that no doubt does go on within the power elite, so-called. So there are corporate, monetary, very obvious interests like that. There is also less tangible interests, uh, power obviously, um, even fame when it comes to these big big names and big faces we see as the media. So, you know, someone can go and back into the left and uh, can, you know, straight out lie to the American public about one of the defining events of the last century of American politics and become a household name as a result of being able to dependably lie for the power elite. Um, that's how it happens. That's how it works in the system as it exists now. Now, okay, so there are obvious, I mean, there are obvious and less obvious, but there are lots of different reasons why individuals might be induced to go along with cover-up. And then beyond that, it's not like every journalist who signs up to be a journalist is given their, you know, takes a blood oath that they won't spill the Illuminati secrets or anything. It's nothing so grandiose. It's that you are in an environment and there doesn't have to be someone saying, don't talk about that, or you better say this in that way, because everyone knows. So if I say this, they'll, they'll call me crazy and I'll never get anywhere in this profession. So 99% of it, I mean, that's, that's the whole premise upon which Operation Mocking was based is that you don't need to control every single person in the media. You just need to control the key influential uh, opinion makers and the key positions, the editors and the, the op-ed writers and people in, you know, who, who have a large following. And then everyone else just kind of follows them. It's they're the, they're the mockingbirds that just repeat whatever the CIA is secretly telling them to say. So, so again, it, it doesn't even have to be people consciously trying to cover up criminality and corruption. They can just go along to get along, as in so many other aspects of life. The, the other, the, I mean, the hopeful side of this is that exactly as that centralization of power and control in the hands of fewer and fewer, fewer media conglomerates over the past century has demonstrably led to a situation where there is systemic cover-up of cor corruption and criminality. I mean, again, it's always existed, but it is absolutely insane, the levels we've reached at this point. But the flip side of that is the radical decentralization that we've had in the internet over the past couple of decades that has allowed people like myself, people like whoever your favorite independent blogger, vlogger, journalist, whatever is, uh, has allowed them to be, right? I mean, that is that is the flip side of this equation. And that's why so much of this incredible corruption and criminality is now being exposed and why so many people are turning to independent media sources and why certain formerly independent and alternative outlets are now becoming really the new mainstream in a real sense. Um, not necessarily in a good sense, but anyway, that it is happening. So um, that is, I mean, that's at least a potential positive and something 
we can take away from this. Uh, again, most people do not want to live in a society, uh, whether they know it or not, they do not want to live in a society of corruption and criminality because that only ever benefits a very small few uh, people, um, which is why the incentive is vastly skewed to the other side. People do want to expose this stuff, but um, the incentive structure has been flipped on its head, especially over the past century. And it's beyond the scope of this podcast, which is already getting too long, but to do an in-depth review of the way that the media space and the media uh, corporate sector conglomerated into these these gigantic behemoths over the past past century, really, um, would be a fascinating study and one that, uh, well, we'll keep in mind for the future. I'm not promising anything, but I think it would be a good idea. Okay, let's turn back to the contact form at corporatereport.com for the next question. This one from Patricia, who writes, I enjoyed listening to your recent interview with Nomi Prinz, and as a result of that interview, picked up her book, All the President's Bankers. The discussion of events leading to World War I and the sinking of the Lusitania made no reference to it being a false flag attack. At this point, I feel that this omission decreases credibility of her book's premise, and I have serious doubts to continue reading. What are your thoughts? Okay, thank you very much for the question, Patricia. Um, this allows me to address a larger point, but first on the specific point of your question. Uh, we are, just to put the context on the table, we're talking about All the President's Bankers by Nomi Prinz. And you'll remember I've had a couple of conversations now with Nomi in which we've referenced this book and how handy a resource it is. The last century plus of history of various bankers and their relationship to various United States presidents 500 pages of exceptionally dense reading, very well-resourced, uh, I mean, 50 or so pages of footnotes alone, exceptionally important and valuable resource. And I've recommended it before. I'll use this opportunity to recommend it again. Now, let's get to the specific point on that uh, Patricia is making here. So there is a uh, section of this book that is about uh, the early 1910s, the early to mid-1910s, talking about the bankers go to war is actually the name of the chapter itself, in which she's setting the context of the bankers and their relationship to President Wilson at the time and uh, their attempts to get the United States involved in war and their war profiteering and all of that. And in that section, there is a section entitled War Thickens, which starts, the situation in Europe was deteriorating quickly. On May 7th, 1915, a German U-20 torpedoed the starboard side of the British luxury, luxury liner Lusitania off the Irish coast. Nearly 1,200 people, including 124 U.S. citizens, were killed. Though the Germans expressed regret for the loss of American lives, it was a reticent regret. Wilson opened secret talks with the German ambassador Count Johann von Bernstorff, Bernstorff to mitigate the targeting of Americans. But publicly, Wilson issued a harsh note to the German government on May 14, 1915. In response, Morgan conveyed to Wilson his intense satisfaction of both the substance and the manner of the note to the German government. So that's the actual passage in question, the one paragraph of this 500-page work that talks about the Lusitania. And I will note, to start off with, that there is not any factually incorrect thing said in that paragraph. Uh, let, to get to the heart of what Patricia is saying, to be, to be absolutely accurate, the Lusitania, no one is suggesting the Lusitania was a false flag event in the sense that it was you know, British or Americans that, that dressed up as a German U-boat and sank the ship. No, every, it's everyone on every side of this issue believes it was a German U-20 It was a, that did torpedo the boat. It really did sink the boat. 1,200 people really did die, 124 of which really were Americans. It really was the Germans that did this. No one disputes that. The only point is in the surrounding context of this boat and what it was really doing, whether it was just a peaceful passenger liner or whether it was carrying munitions and other um, uh, material that would make it a valid target for the U-20. All of that is the sort of missing context of this. And I talked about it, for example, in my conversation with James Perloff on the Lusitania. Uh, please go back to that conversation if you don't remember it. But uh, so to be fair, it wasn't a false flag event in that sense. Um, and uh, to the extent that there is, there is a lot 
kind of context that puts this in a different light. It should also be noted that this was in 1915 and the U.S. didn't actually enter the war till 1917, so sometimes it's portrayed as the Lusitania was the direct proximate cause of World War I, of the U.S. entering World War I. It certainly wasn't. It was just one point along a trail. A propaganda point for sure, but it was still just one point. And again, there is nothing factually inaccurate in that paragraph that Nomi Prince wrote. Now, to be fair, she didn't go into that bigger history of what the Lusitania really was and whether, you know, it was set up to to be sunk as a part of the propaganda to get the U.S. embroiled in war and all of that. But it is coming in the context of a, an entire chapter that's all about the bankers and how they wanted the war, how they were engineering to get the U.S. government on board with the war, how they were profiteering from the war. So it's not like it exonerates the bankers in any sense. Um which, I mean, it's it's kind of mind-boggling to me that that one paragraph and the fact that it didn't go into enough detail, I guess, about this one incident is enough to validate you throwing out 500 pages of densely packed, heavily footnoted, researched, valuable resource material. That just boggles my mind. And... I'm not talking to you in particular, Patricia. I'm talking to many different people out there who... In fact, I get this, a version of this question. I, I swear, every single day I get some version of this question, which may be about, uh, oh, this particular passage of this particular book. Does that mean I, oh, I think I'm going to give up reading the book? Or it could be, oh, this, this researcher said this. Do you think it invalidates everything he's ever said? Or uh, what do you think about this researcher? Or what do you think about that website? Is, is it trustworthy? And I think that the the implication of those types of questions in general, not just Patricia's, but everyone's question along those lines, is the it shows that people are thinking in the wrong way about this question. It shows that ultimately people are looking for gurus. They're not looking for independently verifiable facts that people can slot into a framework of other independently verifiable facts to construct a reasonably accurate worldview. No, people are looking for this source of information as the truth. I can I can turn to this guru, or I can turn to that guru. I can turn to this website, and it will tell me the truth. And everything, every part of every detail of every context of everything that's said is in its full and complete context to help me understand the entire truth of the... That's not only a pipe dream, it's a dangerous pipe dream. Because it is... Ultimately, a fruit, fruitless search for the 100% guru sitting on a cloud who sees everything, knows everything, can impart all of that knowledge completely and, and accurately and in one go all at once so that you, you can turn off your thinking switch and you can just, I will do whatever this person says or whatever this website tells me is the truth. Please do not do that. Do not ask, is this researcher? Can I trust this person? Don't trust any person. Don't trust me. Don't trust the Corbett Report. Don't trust any source as a source. You trust the information you can independently verify, factual, real-world information, and you put that into a worldview. And uh, as long as people are looking for that guru or that source so that they can throw out a 500-page book because they disagree with the kind of general tenor of one paragraph of it, it's just, it's it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater and it is self-defeating. And uh, it's, I understand, I understand why it appeals to people, why they want to have a guru floating on the clouds who can tell them everything and they, they can turn off their, their brain. But there is no, there is no guru out there. Stop looking for it. And that's one of the reasons why I don't ask, I don't answer when people ask me, you know, can I trust this person? Can I trust that person? It's completely the wrong question. So it will get you the wrong answers. All right. Again, Patricia, I'm not aiming this answer at you particularly. It's just that this reflects a type of question I receive a lot. And so I will once again tell people, I think All the President's Bankers is an excellent resource, a really, really excellent resource for, for researchers. I wouldn't say this is for casual readers at all. This is for people who really want to know the history of various bankers and what they said and what they wrote to various presidents. And they want to be able to see the footnotes and get go to the source documents and and really dive into the research. But for someone like myself, this is a very valuable research and resource tool that I do make use of. So again, I, I have no doubt that there are pieces of history and philosophy and political uh, understanding that I greatly differ no from Nomi Prinz on, but that doesn't mean that I'll throw out her 500-page book. I think there is valuable, documentable, independently verifiable information in here, and I don't want to throw out the baby with that bathwater. 
Okay, let's turn back to the Corbett Report website from the comment section of the last edition of this series, where we had another question in from a Corbett Report member, this time Jay-Z, who writes, James, what's your take on Anonymous? Lately, I've been seeing a lot of their stuff making its rounds on Facebook, and some of the recent material, material from them seems to begin to dip into topics that are covered at reputable alternative media like here in Global Research. But I also tend to get a bit of a weird vibe from some of their stuff as well, much like I get with alt-media personalities like Alex Jones or even whistleblowers like Assange or Snowden. Do you think Anonymous is completely a CIA false opposition from front to make would-be activists and hacktivists feel as if the work needed to expose the powers that shouldn't be is already being accomplished. All right, thank you for the question, Jay-Z. And as Algorithm of Conscious uh, notes in the replies to your comment, it's important to remember Anonymous is not monolithic. Anonymous is not a group. It is, I mean, there are no card-carrying members. There's no way to identify this this person is anonymous. This person is not anonymous. Whoever says that they are anonymous are anonymous. And that's the point of this group. It's not a group. It's just a label that anyone at all can stick on themselves and they will be anonymous. They, you know, So it is not a group. So it, absolutely, there are, I have no doubt, earnest activists, hacktivists, white hat hackers, what have you, who truly believe or even truly are doing great work exposing real criminality and corruption and evil under the name and under the label, under the rubric of anonymous. And I am absolutely 100% certain there are trolls and agents and operatives and informants who are operating under that label as well. And from the outside perspective, I mean, you can make informed guesses, but there's no way to fundamentally and, and without doubt differentiate between those classes of, of anonymous. Again, it is not a group. Stop talking about it as a group. Stop thinking about it as a group with a formed political agenda. It is literally anyone, including the intelligence services. No doubt about that. So just because something comes out, I mean, when something comes out under the label of anonymous, oh, anonymous is doing this, that just means that some group of people are doing this. And that's all it should be taken to mean. Uh, there is no coordinated anonymous. There is no coordinated agenda. And there is absolutely no doubt that intelligence agencies use that label and that name and that cachet to put out some of their ideas and memes. So once again, actually, just like the previous question, once again, we have to bring it back down to stop looking for groups, labels, individuals, gurus, start looking at independently verifiable factual information about the real world. And that will eliminate a lot of these problems that people have in trying to parse through, you know, is this... Is this a front? Is this an op? Is this a CIA agent? Well, f try to find the actual verifiable reality. And uh, some, I mean, and there are things that we can't know, um, and we have to take that into account. We have to have some epistemological humility in our worldview as well. Um, so let's take that into account. Um, next, we have a question in, again, from Corporate Report member Mark, who writes, A question for James for next time, and perhaps you knew this was coming. The question is, why have you apparently not ever addressed the Jewish question? I have noted this on an ongoing basis in the years that I've followed your work, and now have done a cursory search of my prehistory here, and didn't find anything that fits the bill there either. Thank you for the question, Mark. Um, have you ever noticed how people who ask about the Jewish question never actually ask a question? <laughs> Have you ever noticed how they put capital letters on the Jewish question and then just leave it there as if it's, well, that's a question. It answers itself. Uh, isn't it kind of funny how it's just the Jewish question without an actual question mark? Uh, I think there is a reason for that. And it's because I have to interpret this into a question in order to answer it. And the only interpretation of this question I can come up with is, James, why don't you blame the Jews for all evil in the world? And I think that's why it's generally not framed as a question. It's because 99% of people out there would hear that question and realize it to be ridiculous. Of course, there are good Jews and evil Jews, as there are good and evil in every ethnic and or religious sect and race and class of people on this planet. Um, and most people have personal experience with that. They know people, Jews, who are not part of the grand Jewish conspiracy. So it's a self-defeating and self-answering question because it's self-evidently not true. But I, this actually brings to my mind a counter question to the Jewish question in scare quotes and everything. 
is my question, my counter question is, are the people that you identify, the, the Jews with their evil plans, are they wrong with their ideas and with what their actions and what they do because their actions and their ideas are wrong? Or are they wrong because they are Jews? Because if it's the latter, then it's, I guess it's a very simple problem with a very simple solution, a final solution, if you will. Just mark everyone with a gold star and put them in little ghettos and, you know, eventually kill them all, um, you know, because that's what it'll ultimately come to. And you've rid the world of all evil. Yay, yay, okay, hold hands, kumbaya. Again, self-evidently ridiculous. Or they are wrong. The Jews who populate the high levels of finance and media. I mean, it's not the Saudis who run Hollywood. Um, it, clearly, there are, obviously, a lot of Jews in, in finance and media and places like that with real power in society. But are they wrong because they are Jews? Or are they wrong because their ideology is wrong? And if it is the, if it is the former, then again, as I say, it's very easy to solve. If it's the latter, if they're wrong because their ideas are wrong, then their ideas need to be confronted. That is the ultimate point about this. Once again, it's about, it's the war for consciousness, it's about ideology, and if ideology cannot be refuted by argumentation, then you don't have anything on your side. If their ideas are right, but they happen to be wrong because they're Jewish, then then what are you fighting against? You have to fight the ideas that you identify as wrong. So if there is something wrong with the ideas of whatever, whoever, an Alan Greenspan or whatever, then fight their ideas as ideas. Because otherwise, people looking from the outside are just going to see, oh, you just hate him because he's Jew. No, no, I hate ideas that are wrong. And Zionism as a political ideology is inherently racist and wrong and can be refuted as such. But... If you just say, oh, it's the Jews, then ultimately you're, you're answering your own question. Why do, why do people not address the, the question, why are the Jews the root of all evil? It's because it's self-evidently not true. All right, um, let's move on to the next question. I, we have a couple of questions here on a more personal side. Uh, we have B. Gree in the comment section asking, as I have been listening to your podcasts, I've heard references and insinuations, insinuations to books you have written and published. I went to the main page with items for sale and no books. My question is, what books have you written besides essays on the New World Order, and how would I be able to obtain them? <laughs> oh, thank you, B. Gree. Oh, this question. Um... Yes, I have made references to that book before, haven't I? And that's because seven years ago, I was eight, eight years ago now almost, I was planning on publishing a book called Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. Somehow or other, that book never materialized. <laughs> it's not that it's been, it's not that I've been writing it for eight years, but in a sense I have. Um, those essays have developed as I've written hundreds and hundreds of editorials for the International Forecaster and for the Corbett Report. So... <laughs> I, in a way, have been working on it, but I have not yet released that book. I have not yet released a single book. I have not published any books. Now, I'm going to say that that's going to change in the very near future, but I am not going to give any dates because, hey, I did that before in 2009 when I first announced Reportage and <laughs> eight years and counting. So I'm not going to uh, get anyone to set their watch for it, but there will be a book followed by hopefully many more from me and uh, hopefully in the nearer rather than the more distant future. And I am, I am actually working on that right now to make it a real reality. So stay tuned, please. And obviously you will know about my book when it is published and I will absolutely provide ways for you to find out more about that. Let's turn back to the, uh, the mailbag contact form. Peter uh, writes an interesting question. Just listen to your Requiem for the Suicide podcast on Terrid Siaki, and I have a question. How do you maintain stamina? I only listen to you and get exhausted by the gravity you're laying down day after day. Also, you have a young family. You must have immense optimism, trust, faith, call it what you will, in human goodness. What is your belief regarding spirit and the power of the positive? Please keep shining. All right, thank you for the question, Peter. And yes, when it comes to exceptionally heavy material like the Requiem for the Suicided series, uh, it's a very good question because, trust me, I take this information that is being conveyed here exceptionally seriously. It is information that in some cases does cost people their lives. It is, I mean, it is extremely important and it is extremely important to try to convey this information and pass it on and keep that torch burning, etc. But I hope 
I try not to take myself too seriously. I'm just, I'm just a regular guy. I'm no one special. It's not like I have some magic key that no one else has. I'm not a guru sitting on the clouds. And I'm not the, the font of all wisdom and knowledge in the universe. And I don't try to take myself as such or put myself forward as such. So that is, I think, an important part of this, that I, to realize that I'm just a person who's just passing this torch on and I'm doing a very small part in compared to what people like Terence Yakey and others have done and paid for it with their lives. Um, so keeping it in that perspective and also having a family and a life in the real world where I'm not playing spy games and dodging murder plots and things in my real day-to-day -day life. I'm changing diapers and taking out garbage and going to the park with my family and just living life, a day-to-day -day real reality, which you might actually hear in the background as people are swarming around in my increasingly cluttered house here. So um, that is that is my reality, which is the real world that I'm in. And then you see me here doing the podcast and concentrating on this material, which is very hard, hard, hard to do and also dark and gritty stuff. But it's not the only thing in my consciousness. It's not what I concentrate on. In fact, the what I concentrate on is my family and my life and the real world and the things that I do interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis, because that that is the reality I'm fighting for. That's what I want to preserve. That's what I want to carry on. That's what I want to leave for my children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. That's the world that I'm fighting for. Not, you know, I'm not concentrating only on the dark side of this. And I know it's difficult because um, people fall down that hole and this is all they're listening to and it's deep and dark and gloomy. Um, that's why, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the, I hope the corporate board is not the only site you're going to and the only place that you're feeding your consciousness. We all need things to remind us of the real world and what's going on and, you know, what's outside of the bounds of this screen that uh, is not so dark and gloomy. Um, and I try to import, impart that talking about solutions, talking about community, talking about those important issues, but you can only talk about that so much. You have to live that as well. So I think that's that's the other aspect of this that's very difficult, if not impossible, to convey in a podcast like this. But that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm here fighting for what I'm fighting for, because I love and care about my family and friends and people out there. And uh, that's that's the side of this that keeps me grounded uh, when I go into the dark gritty material like the Requiem for the Suicided series and other other dark stuff like that. Anyway, I hope that's something approaching an answer to that question. Um, and finally, let's, again, as we are wont to do here on this podcast, let's turn the last question around to you. Question for you. Uh, this one in from Fractal Universe, again, a Corbett Report member on the last edition of this series, who wrote the question, while listening to your reading of Lys Lysander Spooner, I think I heard him mention that states and countries themselves are existing, doing business, interacting, waging war, etc., in a state of anarchy, meaning without a ruler. This is true. Who rules the states? Well, you could argue the UN does. Eh, not really. But then, who rules the UN? At some level in any hierarchy, there is anarchy. A bizarre internal contradiction most statists have is the outright rejection of a voluntarist anarchist society for individuals, yet they seem perfectly fine with countries, groups of politicians conducting business, waging war, etc. in anarchy. My whole point in question is, am I missing something when I say anarchy equals power, since whoever is not being coerced must be at the top of the hierarchy? Of course, if there is no hierarchy, it's already anarchy. By definition, the people only have power in an anarchist society, and they give up all their anarchy to the next level on the hierarchy as soon as they allow themselves to be coerced in any way. This could be a clear explanation in an attempt to red pill statists. What do you think? All right, uh, again, I'll throw this question to you guys out there. What do you think? I... For one, I certainly understand the point that's being made here, and I agree that there is, there, it is self-evidently true that the nations of the world exist in a state of anarchy, which has been tempered, especially over the past century, by a number of international agreements and frameworks and treaties, so that there are now uh, international, there is international law, and I've even had a podcast episode about the idea of international law and how it's developed and how it's being used to drive us further and further into the League of Nations, United Nations, International Court of Justice, and into the World uh, uh, World Trade Organization and other organizations like that that want to try to form what is, in a sense, in essence, a global government structure, which takes this anarchy of nations and makes a, a hierarchical structure out of them. But 
for the most part, and countries still exist in a, an anarchy amongst themselves, and that should raise some questions for people. I mean, I think most people who, most people, including the non-anarchists who listen to my work, probably agree that there should be a state of anarchy among nations rather than uh, a central global government to control them all. So why is it good on that level, but not good if we take it down too far? How far is too far? Should states and provinces and prefectures have more rights or, or municipalities? Should they be allowed to govern? What should they be allowed to govern? Why? And should there be perhaps an anarchy among states so that they can compete amongst each other within the federal framework? But then what's the point of a federal framework? There's a lot to get into there. And, uh, me, obviously, I'm already sold on voluntarism, um, and all human interaction should be voluntary, so I mean, you don't have to argue with me. But I, it is a question. Does that red pill statists? I have, a, I have a hunch that most statists are not going to be flipped around by just pointing out to the anarchy of nations. But <laughs> at any rate, <laughs> let's see what people out there think, including the non-anarchists who, for some reason or other, are listening to this podcast. Anyway, that's going to do it for this month's edition of the Questions for Corbett. As always, please get your questions in. As I say, many different ways to do it through the contact form, through Twitter, through YouTube or whatever video platform, through the SpeakPipe application. I'm looking forward to more of your questions next month. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Talk to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.